Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Very happy Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas, Sean. Merry Christmas. Um, so we're really excited today. Uh, we're getting to worship together with Tribe Orlando. Um, we've been in relationship for a couple years now. We were roommates for a little while at uh, Alden, RIP. And, uh, and now, and you guys are, what's the, the uh, we're venue? We're meeting at uh, OGA, which is the Orlando Gifted Academy. So we're still close. We're yeah. neighbors in a different way. Not in the same house. Not roommates, but maybe neighbors now. Yeah. We're like two miles up the road. Like our kids are going to grow up together. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And love each other. Yeah. Like we love each other. And they get married. If they get married. Maybe. I I lost the analogy. I lost lost the analogy. analogy. You took it too far, bro. (laughs) Go ahead, little suave. Slow down. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so we're going to, we're going to, today we're going to be talking through, you know, uh, being Christmas. And I think this is interesting. A lot of times in our society, it's like, Christmas is like the month before December 25th, and then the season's over, mm. and now we're, we're looking forward to New Year's. Um, but for us as Christians, like, we haven't even celebrated Christmas yet, which I love. Like, we've been in Advent, which is a, a word means arrival or coming, like anticipating the coming of Jesus. Yesterday, we celebrate the first day of Christmas, which is the revelation that he's here and he's with us. And then we spend 12 days celebrating Christmas um, and Epiphany being part of that, and then we continue on. So this is just the second day of Christmas, which is exciting. So we're going we're gonna to do a reading today. Um, we heard earlier from Luke chapter 2, so we wanted to read uh, the Christmas story, but from a different angle, which is the way that John tells it to us uh, in the first chapter of his gospel. It goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did not receive him, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one that I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we will all have received the grace in place of grace Sorry, already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who he himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. 
Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, that you go before us to make level the path. Lord, that it's not about us showing up and having to do the work to enter into your presence, but that we can relax into it, that we can open ourselves up just to receive from you today. So, Holy Spirit, would you descend upon each of your dear ones that are here this morning, soften our hearts to receive your truth, open our ears to hear you speaking to each one of us, wherever we might be today in the story, whether this season has been crazy and it's blown by us and we haven't even had time to pause and to think, or if we've just been drenched in Christmas stories and gifts and music and, and, and getting everything we can out of that, Lord, we all still come to this place expectant that we're going to meet you. Um, and that same word becoming flesh that we celebrate almost 2,000 years on uh, becomes true again in our own hearts today. And so may the words of our lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is kind of where, how we want to tie it all together. Like I said, um, for City Beautiful Church, for Tribe, we both ended up going through these four dominant themes for the year of like, what, what is this all been about? And this year was like, the, it felt different. It's like, and that's what I love about doing church calendar stuff is it's like, it's always the same every year, but the way that it hits is a little bit different. So kind of here's where we want to go. At Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of an unreasonable God who saves the world in unreasonable ways. Yeah, I think, uh, well, first it felt different because I just realized all I've been doing is pre-gaming Christmas. Um, <laughs> when you broke down that church calendar, I went really hard on the pre-game because Noche Buena for us is like the thing. <laughs> so we went so hard, but it did feel different this year because each one of these stories is something that you know, we, we broke down, obviously, with the four uh, different major components. But I said this year for us, I felt like all of these tenets became something else for me because I realized how much more messy they can be. Like the Christmas story revealed to how very human it all is, how very, you know, when we talk about hope and peace and joy and love is these, these ideas that we rally behind because they're beautiful and they bring out the best versions of us and they're the things that we pursue but within them, sometimes we have, this or we have this thing or this tendency to kind of gloss over and think they just kind of happen. And because we celebrate them and we sing them and we talk about them during the Christmas holiday that somehow they just are going to be that. But I don't know how many of you guys have ever felt like you've had to fight for hope and peace and to keep joy and to actually become love. And so there was this thing that as we kind of talked about is that this year it felt so real because my tendency is to like look at scripture and go, where am I at in the story? Like, how do I participate in it? Like, who am I in the room? And of course, like before all of our leading men and ladies out there go, I'm the main, I'm the main character. Like, sometimes you're not. And sometimes that really messes with your head because you're like, wait, I thought this was about me. And the Christmas story frames it perfectly to go, oh, no, it's not about you. It's actually about him. And then we get to participate and actually become these things, the gifts that he has come to give us that we also in turn become. So... I think it's the participation this year for me was a lot different, and, and especially in the season. Christmas is like, I think, I don't know, parents, you can be honest, like something like, smile, it's Christmas, or you're going to be happy today, it's Christmas. And it's like, but I'm not happy. <laughs> like, how do I feel joy when I don't feel the joy right now? I'm trying to be a calm and, you know, peaceful presence, but I feel anxiety or anxious or stress. Is there room for that in the Christmas message? And I think this year I found that there was, and a lot more than maybe I believed. I think for me, you know, we, we've talked about it before, like most people that have been in this community know, like, 
it was January 2020 when we were doing this asking the Lord for a word that would guide us personally that year, and that was the year that the Lord gave me the word apocalypse. Yeah, you kind of ruined that <clears throat> Again, for all of us. Again, I am yeah, so yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and then we enter into this pandemic, and we enter into this like unprecedented political season, and it just felt like what that word apocalypse means is like things that were hidden are being revealed. It's not like something new is showing up, but something that was underneath the surface. And I think what I've what I've experienced in this year feeling different in Advent is, is like these words are true, but in ways that maybe we didn't anticipate. And it's, it's recognizing in one part when we talk about Christmas and we talk about the reason for the season, the Christmas spirit, even it's in our movies, it's on our cards, like it's in the, the things that we do in this season when we actually say, okay, but what is that? Like a lot of times our culture doesn't have really good answers. It's, generally maybe something about spending time with family possibly or having good feelings you know and I, th I think you're right like this year being one where we had we've had to like reclaim the story at the center of the story and put that back into its place and then re-examine it through new eyes and my hope is that's what's happening in the church right now is that we're um it's like it's all all the the fluff is being purged but then we can actually come back to the real story of the coming of Jesus and look at it and say, man, this is like, it's gritty and it's weird and it's dirty and there's all these unforeseen things happening and we're re-engaging with it in a way that it's washing over us and it's actually giving us context for these things in a, in a deeper way, which I think is exciting. Like, I think this is a dangerous story. Mm -hmm. It really is. It, but we, we need new eyes to see it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of kind of reflect on these four major themes, hope, peace, joy, and love. And we'll share a little bit about how we've been meditating on that and just kind of see how the Lord's woven that together. And there's going to be a couple of moments for y'all to just spend some time before the Lord or to engage with one another. So we begin with hope. Waiting in hope prepares us to receive the promise that God gave us for a savior. And so through Advent, we're focusing on the prophets as being uh, a people that God raises up in a, in a numbed society where everybody's feeling stuck, everybody's feeling that there's no change, there's kind of these oppressive systems that are holding people down, and the prophets come along to try to teach people how to grieve because we need to learn how to grieve our current situation before we can actually earn hope. Because if we don't learn how to grieve before we hope, all we can hope for is optimism, and that's us escaping from the reality of our lives. But it's learning how to feel the pain and the frustration and looking at the world around us and going, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Until we can actually feel that, and then we can't envision a better world in the way that God has designed it. And so what we find, maybe, you know, maybe many of you don't know this, but between the old, at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, it was 400 years of darkness. So those prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Hosea, Micah, so on and so forth, they all speak these words that someday God's going to send his Messiah, his Savior, who's not just going to rescue the Jewish people, but is going to rescue the entire world. And then they waited 400 years. How many of you know how old the United States of America is? It's at least 30 years old, right? It's at least that. Can anybody get it exact? I know I've got at least two history teachers in here. What year? Oh, let's do this. What year was it founded? All right, good. So whatever that math is. So we're talking, we're talking almost twice as long as our country has existed. 
Israel was in darkness. And I have to wonder about that, we call it the intertestamental period. That's the fancy term for it. Between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, the stories we just read today, they're sitting around waiting for God to do something for 400 years. Like, did they get itchy? You know, did they begin to wonder, like, is this, I don't know if this is going to turn out. Like, how many of us, like, we get uncomfortable, we don't get a response to something within 24 hours, let alone 400 years And one of the things that hit me so much this year when we're talking about hope and this idea of sacred waiting is like, how long are you willing to wait for the promises of God? Are you going to give God 24 hours to respond? Are you going to give him seven days? Does God get a year to respond? How long is it before you go, this isn't worth it, I'm going to just go and make these things happen on my own? Because what happens so often in the waiting is that God begins to do something to the deepest part of ourselves, those things that we think we wanted. And he begins to shift around something in the waiting. And we realize the thing that we wanted maybe isn't really the thing that we wanted. We wanted something far more like deep and profound. And that's the place where God can actually begin to minister to us. And I think what I've, what's been so helpful for me with Advent, being this space of slowing down before we get to Christmas, is that when we slow down, we stop looking for the Savior that we think that we need. We stop looking for a Jesus that's branded to give us all the things that we thought we wanted. And we slow down and we let him speak to us. We let him reveal himself to us. And it begins to open up to say, this is the savior that we've received. And then to believe he's actually better than the one that I would have created that just props up all of my political agenda or my economic agenda or my family's agenda or whatever it is. When we slow down and we wait and we feel that itchiness of sitting in the darkness waiting for him, he begins to show us who he actually is. And we know this even from the story. Like when God comes through the baby Jesus, most people did not appreciate that. That was not the way that God was supposed to show up. This isn't what God looks like. But for those who had been prepared in that darkness, in the waiting, that looked like good news. That is good news. I I think uh, when we approach hope, or at least when I did this year, was, again, trying to put myself directly in the story. And, you know, Jonathan read it. And that Luke chapter 2 is like, I hear it, and it's beautiful, and there's so many songs that are inspired in that space. Like I started thinking of all the Christmas songs. Oh, okay, there's that one, there's that one, there's that one. I'm like, okay, I hear them, I see them. But the ones that really like leapt out to me were the shepherds in the field, like the second part of the chapter there. When they start telling the story and it says that there was these shepherds out in the field. And as the shepherds are out there, they're just doing what shepherds do. They're with sheep and they're out with their people and with their, you know, their flock and they're there. And there's like this moment where the star shines in the sky and we're all familiar with it and we celebrate it and we sing songs about it. But they were just doing their normal life and something happened to them. They have this experience. And as they're doing what they've always done and they have this experience, then an angel shows up. And as is you know, pretty usual in the scriptures, angels show up, people get scared. Um, so they're terrified. And then not only one angel shows up, but then it says uh, the heavenly host. And I'm like, okay. So multiple, a lot, I'm like the imagery for me is one minute I'm by myself with my sheep and now I'm seeing an angel and now there's an entire host of angels proclaiming the good news to all the world. And I just thought to myself, we blow by it because it feels like what I would consider like Christianese. It feels like the language is familiar within church culture. 
I didn't grow up in church culture. So this language is unfamiliar to me. And all I'm thinking is like, but where did the angels go? Like, <laughs> but what happens after that? Because something happened out there in that field. And what I love and super subtle in that Luke chapter two uh, story is that the shepherds say, let us go and see for ourselves what they have told us. And I love that because immediately it reminds me that hope isn't just like this wishful thinking. Hope sometimes has to do the hard work of like going and touching for yourself. I felt like it validated my own little like inward cynicism. Where there's parts of me that I want to believe that it's good news, but I got to see for myself. I remember spending most of my, my life up until I was 20 years old predominantly living in a world where, hey, I heard Christians talk about hope, joy, peace, and love. I knew people who went to church, and I believed that they believed it with all their hearts and all their soul and all their minds and everything that's within them, right? But it didn't translate into, well, I need to see for myself. Nothing changed until I got into the room, and then I had that experience, right? I was like, whoa, what just happened? What did I just feel? What did I just sense? And I felt like the shepherd's hope, one that's kind of seeped in doubt and maybe even a little bit of fear and cynicism, reminds me that hope isn't like absent of these things. The shepherd's hope is one that persists in spite of doubt and fear. It's like, hey, I just had, I don't know, let, let, let's put ourselves into the story, not theirs. Have you ever been to church and seen everyone really engaged? Like maybe there's someone in the room, don't point them out, and they really just go forward in worship, probably Jenna. But, you know, you, you see someone just going forward in worship, and you're like, what are they doing? Like, why? Where does that come from? And this is what I'm starting to learn. Hope feels like something you can borrow. Because I come into the room and it's like, I don't have any. I don't feel like I can muster up the energy required to have hope. And it seems like something that we cheapen so much because we just throw it out. Like, well, have hope. You got to have hope. You got to have hope. I can't or I don't see it. But then I look over and someone who's just dripping in it, I'm like, maybe I can borrow theirs. And it starts with a question. It does start with, well, why are they the way that they are? Why do they got to do so much? Why are they so extra? Why, why is this happening? And it's like, well, wait, maybe there's something there. Maybe the questions are actually what, like, walk us into the promise. And I think so often within our church context and within our church communities, we limit questioning and curiosity. And maybe even for those cynics in the room, you're just like, no one wants to answer my questions. Here's one thing I've learned. I'm not going to always be as, you know, church is very comfortable answering the questions we know the answers to, but not the ones being asked. I'm willing to journey with you when you say, hey, let us go and see for ourselves that they told me. Who told you? Angels? Bro, you really need to, you really need to go and figure out for yourself if what the angels and the heavenly host said is true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. You might need a friend to go with you. And we're better suited to borrow one another's hope join in one another's hope get on this journey together in hope because most of our common theory around hope or behind it it is more like a maybe situation this is what i know this is what they told me maybe it'll be true and hope is actually so much more rooted in this idea of assurance and expectation and certainty and those are words that we don't like but the truth is, is that hope is not something that is so cheaply used like wishful thinking, but it's something that resonates with the core of who you are. It's like something that's like so anchored in the bedrock of your spiritual gut or maybe just your natural gut. I don't know. But it's just so anchored there 
that although your life is going on this journey, pursuing and figuring out is it real or is it not, that that hope anchors you in a very true, very real reality. You know, hope is less about seeing that, hey, maybe there's a possibility that something can happen and then resting assured there's been a promise and it will be fulfilled. So we want to take a moment with hope and we want to kind of sit in that sacred waiting. So I'm going to pray um, and we're just going to give you a minute or two just to dialogue with the Lord around this question. In what area of my life do I need to wait in hope for the Savior right now? Maybe another way to put it is like, where are you itchy right now in your life? Where's this thing where you're not entirely confident, like you're kind of coming into this with those doubts and those fears, but you just need to slow down and kind of just speak to the Lord for that. So I'm going to pray, give you a moment just to kind of consider, um, you know, where do you need to see that hope and then just to spend some time praying with the Lord, okay? Um, so Father, we do thank you for the words that we receive from the prophets um, that speak to this story that we see come true in Jesus. But even though... Um, they had to wait 400 years. There was something you were doing in that time to condition the hearts of those who would receive Jesus as the Messiah. And Lord, you want to do the same thing for us today. So Father, as we spend some time in your presence in this moment, would you show us in our lives, where are the places where we really need hope to believe um, that you want to do something new, that you want to fulfill a promise, that you want to uh, change the trajectory of our lives for, for better. So speak to us, Lord, for we're listening. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Yes, Lord. So that's hope. Next, we move on to peace. And when we were talking earlier in the week, you were asking me, like, which one hit particularly hard? It was kind of, it was difficult because I feel like there was different angles to all of them. But, like, peace often feels like my home base anyway with these things. But not because I would consider myself a peaceful person, but because... I actually consider myself a pretty violent person trying to like enter into peace. Um, so this is kind of what was really hitting me this, this year especially. I think after the past couple of years that we've had with everything that's been happening in our country that God brings us peace with God and with one another through the infant Jesus. So there's kind of two pieces that we talk about. First of all, we have peace with God. We have right relationship with God. Like we, through Jesus, we're brought into right relationship with him. But the second kind of peace that's offered to us through Jesus is the peace that we have with one another. Um, and I think that 
part of this is why God chose to come as a baby. Have you ever, like, you know, you're talking about, like, even, like, when you read the story through new, new eyes and you're like, yeah, but why do you do it like that? And that's one of the things that, that has hit me a few times is when we look at this story and, and God incarnate. It's not, like, it's not like Jesus was born and then he's going to go off to seminary and then he's going to get his doctorate and then he gets to become God when he's qualified, you know, or when he's grown. Like he's going to hit 25 years old. His brain's going to stop developing at that point, And he's like a fully developed man. And now he gets to be God. Like that was a ba- like that baby, that was God. That wasn't, a, that wasn't an anticipation of being God. Like that was actually God incarnate. And I think that that's insane. <laughs> like that's not the way that I would have. If I was going to save the world, I wouldn't start with a baby in a shed. You know what I mean? Like that seems ridiculous. Like that's not how you win things. You get lots of degrees and you amass lots of followers and you speak very articulately and you, you know, you do these and you become pot. Like that's how you save the world. That's how you and I, if we were to write the story, that's what we're going to do it. You certainly wouldn't come as this little Palestinian brown baby sitting in a shed on the outskirts of a small town in the middle of nowhere. Like that's not how you would do it. But then as I was thinking about this, I recognized this is the power of that. Like, all y'all know when there's a baby in the room, right? Now, some of you have an aversion. Like, let's, let's, let's do honesty. How many of you, there's a baby, and you're like, huh, cool, yeah, like, I, I, keep it away. Thank you for your honesty, Laura. I love, what, what was that like, huh? He had them, and he still has an aversion to babies? Well, thank you for your honesty, Steve. But, like, and some of us, we gravitate towards babies when they're in the room, right? Like, there's this rare power that babies have over a room. And it's not the same power as if, like, the mayor walks into a room or a CEO of a business company. You know, it's not the same kind of power. Because there's a power where the person that has the power insists on it and they kind of dominate the rest of the room. But babies don't do that. Like, they just, they swallow all the power in the room because it's such tenderness and innocence on display. And I wonder if that's why God chose to begin this story as an infant, because it dramatically changes things. And all, you know, what happens when we're vying for power as these supposedly evolved adults with lots of degrees is that we're like trying to have power over one another. We come in and we try to dominate other people with our, with our mind, with our strength, with our, whatever, our talents, whatever it is. Um, so we have this, when we talk about peace, we like, peace is a lovely idea, but it's unreasonable. And that's why we continue to m- maintain cycles of violence because we're trying to do it as adults. But when God enters into the world as an infant with this dramatically different kind of power, it begins to reset the whole conversation around what peace is. And that's what I love in this story then, what, as the result of that peace, this unreasonable God saving the world in unreasonable ways is all the weirdos get in first. It's all the people that don't have power in the story. They're the ones that are welcomed in. So today, reading about the shepherds, these guys that they kind of live on the outskirts of society, they're a little bit shady, it's not a desirable job, they've probably done something wrong that this is their last ditch effort at making a living. They probably make their living in some other kind of shady side business or whatever it is. We've got the Magi that we'll focus on next week, like these for, these dang foreigners that are getting into our country and they're ruining it. And, and they're the ones that are coming in. Elizabeth was way too old to have kids. Mary was way too young. to Like all the weird people in this story, they're the ones that recognize there's a certain kind of power that God has born in this infant Jesus. Yeah, I love that. I love that because immediately I'm just like, yeah, leave it to 
you know, the fringy kids and the uninvited and all the other ones that get it. Like, yes, come on. Um, so I, I love, or even you saying that it's like it declared, it's like this audacious, unreasonable thing. Like, hey, peace on earth. Like, how many wars after this? <laughs> like, how much violence currently? Like, how much all of this happens? And what I love about this declaration of peace is that we realize a super simple truth that peace is intended for this life, that Jesus's arrival brought with it not only the promise of peace, but the means by which to make and keep it. You know, I think that there's like this idea of like, well, rest in peace, or that peace is only allocated for a short time during meditation or wherever else, but that peace doesn't actually do us any good unless you're trying to win Mrs. Universe, right? And that's the answer you go to, um, that you're declaring world's peace. But the truth is, like, we don't have or we don't receive or experience world's peace until you learn that your internal peace reflects and projects onto the world. That it's like the hard work and what this moment is actually teaching us is that, and I get this now more than ever as a parent, is that you finding peace in your internal world is what actually creates a world of peace. And so many of us are looking outwardly like, well, Jesus, didn't you say that peace on earth? Hey, Jesus, aren't we supposed to be experiencing? Well, you're raging inside. You're having this subcurrent of whether it's rage or anger or frustration or all these other shadowy feelings that unfortunately we've learned or adopted these ways of suppressing or bypassing them and then wondering why it's not reflected on the, earth, on the world or in the world. Famine, it, it, it's us. It, it's us who does the hard grimy, gritty work of finding peace internally. So then, then it's projected onto the world. And I think this idea of just peace becoming much more of an active, like a verb, you know? Um, you know, growing up in, in my neighborhood, there was, you know, a, a huge like Islamic community. And I remember every time we'd go outside, everyone was, you know, assalamu alaikum, you know, greeting us with peace right there. And people would respond, shalaikum shalom. And I'm like, what are they saying? And I'm like, hold on. And then this word of shalom, like the idea of peace being something that you make. Like in Hebrew, the idea of peace, that shalom is actually like how you pay your debts. Make sure there's nothing between you and your neighbors. Like that there's no deficiency or lack. The peace is actually the hard work of going and realizing that there is no peace in the world. Hey, church, this is our call to now step into the world and to make peace. Because why? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Not peace proclaimers or even sayers, and in our world, reposters, peacemakers. You have to go and make peace. I think we tend to understand peace much more closely to passivity. As long as I don't get involved, as long as I'm okay, all you Enneagram nines, you know it. Like, hey, like, let's, let's not upset the sub, because if I let this go, which is what you're talking about, if this comes and bubbles up, there's so much that's been happening here, let me just clock out and take a nap. Because I don't want that out in the world, which in some ways feels like a good service to all of us. But in fact, the greater service would you be, are you gaining mastery over that storm and that water, that subcurrent, so that that is what's reflected out into the world. So, peace. So, um, in a moment, I want you to, to, to turn to the people next to you, and I want you to, to discuss this. And focusing in almost on that second piece, like one of my favorite things about the church is God brings together people that wouldn't normally associate. So I think about that, you know, your nativity scene that you have at home and there's like a little shepherd and there's like a cow and a sheep and there's some, again, we, like 
weirdos from Iraq that are there, and there's this unmarried couple, and these angels, like all these people, they show up, and that's what church is, like, it's a bunch of weirdos in a room, and, and none of you would know each other if it wasn't for Jesus, like, this is actually the tangible evidence of peace. So I want you to take a couple minutes and discuss with your neighbors, what kinds of people has God brought into my life that I wouldn't have normally associated with? People that aren't part of your tribe, they're not part of your socioeconomic class, they're not part, you know, whatever it is, you've been brought into relationship with these people and that's the evidence of God's peace at work. So turn to one another and discuss that for a couple minutes. Give you about 30 more seconds. So even Shop and I were just talking about like, if it weren't for Jesus, neither of us would have met. Like, he's not going to end up at any of the metal shows that I go to, and there's no chance I was going to turn up for his dance class. You know what I mean? But it's because of Jesus that we've become friends. And like, that's, that's the, like that to me, it's so tangible mm-hmm. when we put it in those terms and realize like the people that are gathered around the infant Jesus are people who wouldn't normally show up in each other's space. Um, so the next one we move on to is joy. Yeah. All right. I mean, if I was going to say there was one that did mean the most to me this year, it was probably joy. Um, because it's in short supply these days, right? Amen? Like, jo- happiness is in short supply. Joy is in short supply. Like, everything that's coming at us over the past couple of years has been so negative and critical and harsh. And there's one part of that where it's like we need to, like, honesty brings that. You know, when we start to be honest about the world around us and, and what is happening in the church, what's happening in ourselves, like it's really painful and it could be depressing and that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that that's a thing that's aside from joy. So the question for me became, how do I pursue joy in the midst of the, the heaviness of what life is right now? And my parents living with me. 
But talk about waiting on the Lord. Hallelujah. Won't he do it? Won't he do Won't it? He do it? <laughs> <laughs> so at Christmas, we celebrate the joy of receiving Jesus as the splendor of God. And that word splendor came from that passage from Isaiah that we read that week about the splendor of, the, of God will be revealed. Or for y'all Pentecostals, the glory. The Shekinah. Careful. Careful. Somebody, look, she already, she's ready. She's ready. She's on the edge. She's like, I'll do a lap. Are we going? Right. Is this happening? Um, and it, to me, it was, it was, it's so ironic because I think I learned the value of happiness this year. Because I think a lot of times in church, we know there's a difference between joy and happiness. And we're told happiness has no value. Joy has all the value. And I began to look at my life, I think especially this year, and noticing myself from moment to moment and, and having like amazing moments of happiness and amazing moments of not happiness and going, you know, there's something to like, if I have the joy of the Lord, shouldn't I be happy at least sometimes? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we can, we can be so overly separated. And what I realized was like when, when the joy that comes, like the unshakable joy of recognizing Jesus is the splendor of God. Like, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Like, every other image, every passage of scripture, every book that has been written over the past 2,000 years, every single image of, of God has to submit to the image of Jesus. That's exactly what God looks like. He is the splendor of God, the exact representation of his character. And that unchanging joy that comes in realizing that that's who God really is and allowing that view of God to speak to me in the highs and the lows, in the mountains and the valleys, like in those moments of struggle and in those moments of contentment, it grounds me. And what it's done for me or I'm learning to allow it to do is to notice when I'm actually happy and to bless those moments of happiness because it's a good thing that we enjoy the life that God has given us. It's a good thing that we enjoy our friends, that we enjoy good food. How many of you had good food last night? Or yes, or Noche Buena, like on Friday night. Like you had good food. And like to celebrate, like this is the life that God has given you, to delight. But joy also grounds us for those moments when things are tough and when it's really hard. And I think, to me, joy feels like an act of resistance right now, you know, holiday tradition, I just finished the Star Wars trilogy, the newest one. Wow. And just watching this like contingency of the resistance get smaller and smaller and smaller as the First Order gets bigger. And you're like, this, well, we know it's going to work out because it's Disney. Yeah. But it just, like, it gets this point where it's like this little band of people and it's like they're putting out the feelers to see if anybody's going to come to the rescue and nobody's there. And they're like, what are we going to do? And it's like, how do we claim joy as an act of resistance against a joyless world? And these things that are happening in our lives to put this, to, to dig our feet down and say, no, no, not this year. I'm not going to just like allow myself to be distracted from the splendor of God that's revealed in Jesus. I love that. I think it's like we have this framework that if things aren't going well, then I can't be feeling joy. You know, and it's because joy is not contingent on whether or not God is doing something for you, but whether or not your heart is in the right posture. You know, I think it's always and it's that because if your joy becomes very dependent on what's going on around you, then you'll always be a person where you're like, well, I'm lacking joy. And it's like, well, even when things aren't going well, and what I love, not just about the Christmas story, but throughout scripture, we see this often. Like, you know, maybe the two go-tos, and I'll frame it real quick, but the two go-tos when we think about joy, at least for me, has always been, 
Nehemiah when it says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Like, how does joy become a strength? It's like feeling this, this experience, right? And it's like, well, the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is happening. This is being proclaimed. Literally, like, as this group, this band of people go back to the holy place and are rebuilding it that are broken constantly, you know, in these fights, constantly, you know, in fear of are they going to come back and take the city again? And yet there's this, like, there's so much devastation all around them. And I'm just imagining them reading the scripture like, and the joy of the Lord is your strength, like eat and be merry. It's like how we're fighting. There's so much all around us not working for us. We are in a broken city. And yet still the command is, well, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And even here in the scripture, it's like this moment of joy, this Christmas story, right? It's all this joy. It's all wrapped up there. And the truth is, like, what's the backdrop of what's happening in the world? Herod had made the decree to go out and find the, the babies under two and to kill them. It's like, this is the framework of the most joyous moment in all the world. And in the background of it all is genocide. And it's this reminder that just because things are broken in our world, just because things aren't going the way that we plan them, the joy and despair can occupy the same space sometimes. Those two stories might not mean much to you, but you've seen Inside Out, and you've seen that. And since we're staying on Disney, it's like when that happens, you haven't? You're like, the, oh my God, I saw that face. You're the most joyous person I know. Go watch Inside Out. Um, tonight, today, Yandi, put it on. Um, but there's like this whole moment where the whole movie is them wrestling with sadness, go away, sadness, go away. Because if sadness is in the room, then joy's brilliance dims. That's not true. It's when these two things work together, when you do the hard work of being present enough to deal with what sadness is revealing to you, you can actually receive more fully the gift of joy. And that's always, it's like, it's like that pre -work. We don't want to do the hard, grimy work. We just want to feel happy. And that's why we're always like, well, happiness is fleeting and this, and what do I do? I always think, at least in our house, we've always joked and said, like, the gift of God to humanity is black and brown folks teaching people how to be joyous. Because that's just in there inherently who we are. Like, just let's be fun, let's be loud, let's be excitable, let's be, you know, agreeable and approachable, all those things. And let's just have fun. Like, and I think that that's nice, but are we also doing the hard work of teaching people? Listen, fam, it's going to get hard. And how do we fight to keep our joy. There's always this idea, especially people with, you know, the devil's trying to steal my joy. He can't. It's already yours. It's these decisions that you make to continue to say, I don't know, I say postured in joy so that I continue to, you know, experience it. So we're all coming to yours for Noche Buena next Please. year. Yeah. Four in the morning. Yeah, at four in the morning, I had my second plate. Um, yes. <laughs> I had my second plate and like a whole plate, like arroz, gandule, pastel, the whole thing. Like we went, Pretty hard, yeah. Love it. So um, I want you to turn to those same people and um, kind of looking at this idea of like Jesus is the splendor of God, like we find our unshakable joy in recognizing who he is and allowing that to wash over us, to bless the moments of happiness, but to give us that context for the moments of trial. Um, so turn to one another, and I'm going to give just a couple questions, or a couple minutes. What is the most beautiful thing about Jesus to you in this season? When you look at his face as the splendor of God, what's the most beautiful thing about him to you right now that it grounds you um, in whatever's going on in your life? So just take a couple minutes and consider that with each other.
<laughs> Share with me. I'll give you about 20 more seconds. So hope, peace, joy, and then finally, uh, love. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people, you know, as I've been kind of doing more intentional spiritual direction with some of you, sitting down, like working through uh, what's happening in your life and helping you to learn practices that, that connect you to God. Um, and I've been realizing, like, oh my goodness, like, we spend so much of our lives distracting ourselves from why we're actually here, which is to love. It's to love and to be loved, right? Like that's why we're here on this planet. That's why you exist. You don't exist to pay taxes. You don't exist to like, you know, build bridge, like literal bridges if that's your job, although that's a great thing to do. Like we distract ourselves. You're, you're certainly not here just to fill up your calendar with all of these frivolous things. Like you are on this planet to learn how to receive love and how to offer love. And a lot of times it's because we're afraid, right? Like we're afraid of the responsibility because we haven't been loved very well. So we have kind of very limited glances of what love means. Um, or we're just intimidated to learn how to love other people because it means that we might have to change and we might have to grow. And so we distract ourselves out of love. We, and another way to say it would be that we we just choose to stay in the darkness. But I think Christmas is the realization of God's love that pierces the darkness. It's interesting to me that John chapter 1 can be read as a Christmas story because there is no manger, there are no animals involved, there's no shepherds, there's no magi, but it's this in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. And you notice in the, in the prayer that we prayed, we said that God chose to pitch His tent among us. There's this word in there um, that literally translated means tabernacled. And if you know the Old Testament, you know tabernacle was, it was the big old tent that they put in the middle of the encampment and they put the Ark of the Covenant in it and they'd say, that's where God lives. And so the word was pulled over when John was writing his gospel and he was saying 
God tabernacled among us. Or um, Eugene Peterson said he pitched his tent among us. Or other people have said God moved into the neighborhood. And that's what we're celebrating in Christmas is God is not some sort of you know, high philosophical ideal that is interesting conversation around a drink but has no real tangible evidence in our lives. But like God is known like through his love, which is that he pitches his tent in our midst, like God enters into our world. And I was thinking about why we celebrate Christmas when we do. And one of the theories is that it was missionaries um, that were evangelizing the Irish. How many of you are at least a little bit Irish? Okay, a decent amount of you. Um, and in, uh, in, in Celtic culture and a lot of cultures in Europe, um, they'd celebrate the solstice, which is the darkest night of the year. So that's the 21st into the 22nd, okay? And that was the darkest night of the year. And then every day, it starts to get brighter and brighter and brighter. Many of you will be familiar because paganism is making a roaring comeback in the 21st century. All right. Um, and so what, what the Celts would do is they would celebrate now life, it's getting brighter, and they would decorate trees, and they would give gifts to women because women were the ones that were capable of fertility um, and, and that new life idea as it's getting brighter. And so evangelists came in to the Celtic world, and they saw all these things, but rather than just like smashing all of their ideas and saying, no, 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 we're just going to reimpose this other idea, they said, well, I want to bless some things. It's like you've got a lot of the pieces of the story, but we want to name it. And so Christmas is three days after the solstice. Now, if you're going to talk about Jesus as the Son of God, S-U-N and S-O-N, and that life continues to get brighter, and Jesus was in the grave for three days, that makes a lot of sense. And that's where we get Christmas trees. That's why we give each other gifts because they were blessing something that was already in the culture. But they were saying, this, this thing that you're naming, this darkness to light, this learning how to love and how to be fruitful, it has a name and the name is Jesus. And that's what we're celebrating in this and that imagery of the darkness becoming light. Like that's everything to us. That's what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas. I just, I couldn't help myself. I saw your specs. And you look like a professor. And since you just dropped some Celtic knowledge, I felt like I needed to think harder. Um, just clowning. <laughs> I think because for me, I was like, that's so good. I think I set that up all kinds of profound. And you're just so like, good. I was looking at your glasses. I, because I could, I got super distracted by how cute and profe- professory you are. Um, <laughs> but no, I was thinking to myself, because I'm like, man, it is that, that this love, the light that pierces the darkness. And for me, the Christmas story is the realization that love is something we become, not simply experience. I think that that's the audacious thing that we're being called to, not in this season, but in our lives. It's like, hey, this love that we pursue, this love that we all want to be recipients of, now become it. Like, go and do the hard work of becoming that kind of love, being that kind of lover of people, being that kind of lover of people who even upset you, who bother you, who don't feel like they necessarily deserve it. And of course, as a recovering too, um, you know, I'm like, yeah, let's love the world, let's love the world. Yeah, let's get after that. But it's like, but wait, also become that. Understand that in becoming a person of love, I also validate that I deserve the kind of love that I'm trying to put out. That I have to allow this thing to be reciprocal and become reciprocal. That there's this idea that this whole moment is wrapped up in like, hey, it's the declaration to all the world, Jesus' love. And that we, like him, become these people of love. And I think it's beautiful. And I think my hope for us as a people would be that what Jesus told his followers. Like, how will the world know? By your love for one another. In this Christmas season, like, 
how would the world know that we believe what we believe, that we are who we say we are, or that we believe that he is who he says he is? Go out and become love. Amen. Well, we're going to transition into worship. Um, and when you came in, everybody was given a little candle. And we want to, this is a, you know, this is a tradition that many of you will be familiar with. It's been around for a long time. But I think there's such vital beauty in it that we are in darkness. And what happens is we sing Silent Night is um, Shav and I are going to come over. We're going to light off of the Christmas candle. And we're going to come to the front row and, and pass along that light. And you're going to turn to the people next to you and the people behind you. And you're going to pass along that light. And we move from darkness into light. And I love that symbolism of like, it's through us connecting. Like we pass along the love of God. That's what rescues us. That's what brings us out of ignorance and hatred and pain. And it brings us into the light so that we can be united together. And so that's what we're going to do. If you didn't get a, a candle, did anybody not get one? Everybody good? All right, fantastic. So if you stand with me, I'm going to pray. Um, and we're going to worship together. So Heavenly Father, today of all days, we thank you for the arrival of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This infant child, both God and man, who saves the world in unreasonable ways. Father, your love is not sentimental. It's gritty. It's in and among us. It flows through us and it transforms us. So Lord, I pray as we continue to worship, that as we symbolically pass the light from one to the next, that you would speak to us about our role in loving this world back into relationship with you. That it is an honor and a privilege to worship you and it's an honor and it's a privilege to partner with you to see your kingdom come in our day through the gifts that you've given us, through the skills that you've given us, through the relationships that you've blessed us with in this life. May we never, ever take the Christmas season for granted. Lord, I pray that this would be a resetting for all of us and to come back to you and your story that saves the world. We pray all these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.